Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 1 Corinthians 4. I'm going to do verses 14 through 21. Our context is this. In the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul has started to defend his apostleship. He talks about the ministry of apostles. He says he's a steward of the mystery of God. He's faithful. I'm not going to be judged by you or by any human court. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. It is God who judges me and the implication is is that God is not judging him as being a lousy apostle. And he's saying, look, Corinthians, don't judge me before the time. Everything is going to be hit. This hidden darkness will be brought to light. And, of course, the implication there is probably talking about the motives of his opponents. And then he tells them, don't go beyond what is written. In other words, don't be proud. Don't be puffed up in favor of one against another, one teacher against another teacher. Don't start approving of other apostles before you approve of me. Remember, you didn't receive anything. You got everything from God, so why boast about it and pride, be proud? And now there, and now and then Paul says, look, you've become rich. Look at me. We're last of all. We're scum. We're off-scouring. We're the dregs of the world. We're fools for Christ's sakes. We're weak, but you are strong. You've got it made. We hunger and thirst, and we are poor, buffeted, homeless, reviled, slandered. Okay, so with that background, we begin with verse 14. Paul says this, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, he's unloaded on them, as you can just, as you can see from what I've just said. He unloaded on them, but he is constantly, as he goes through his, his chastisement of the Corinthians, he's constantly telling them, look, you are my children, you are my brethren, you are sanctified, you are beloved. He doesn't want to destroy them, he wants to correct them and bring repentance. Now, he says, I do not write these things to shame you. He could be referring to all those things I just mentioned in verse four, in uh, verses 1 through 13, but it could also be referring to the immediately previous verse when Paul says he was poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, and he had to work, working with his own hands. And if that's what he was referring to, Adam Clark says that Paul didn't want the Corinthians to feel guilty for not giving him money. That was not his primary motive, according to John Gill. But John Gill says, actually, they should have been ashamed for not supporting their apostles, for not supporting Paul. But Paul was not trying to get money. His primary motive was to keep them from being drawn aside to pretenders, as Adam Clark says, from being drawn aside to pretenders to the neglect of those who should truly be supported in the future. People like Timothy, people like Paul. So Paul calls them beloved, my beloved children. After all the Corinthians have done, Paul still loves them as his own children. That's probably why he was so upset when he was writing the the letter, because you get more upset about what your own children do than about what other kids do. And if the Corinthians had any affection at all for their spiritual father, they were probably pretty ashamed. I suspect they probably just got sucked away, but deep down inside, they probably still admired and loved Paul. So we move now to verse 15, 1 Corinthians 4. Paul continues, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Now, what Paul is talking about here, when he says that he was their father through the gospel, he's referring to the fact that he started their church. Let's read some other scriptures here in the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Paul says, I planted, that means he started the church, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Four verses later in 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul says this, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. Apollos was building on it. Paul laid the foundation. So he's saying, look, you've got countless tutors. He's referring to other teachers in the body of Christ. He's not complaining about tutors, but he says, hey, you know, what's better, a tutor or a father? 
Those tutors are doing good. But guys, I started the church, and you're not listening to me. You're running me down. You're complaining to me about all kinds of things, which we'll talk about later. You're weak. You don't talk good. You don't talk well. Excuse me, I don't talk well either. That kind of thing. Your physical appearance is unimpressive because you're short, squat, and bald. All that kind of stuff. He says, hey, but I'm your father. I started your church. Although he didn't baptize them, other people did that. But he did start them. Now, this tutors that Paul refers to that the Corinthians had, countless tutors, lots of them. Jameson Fawcett Brown says those are true teachers because he says in Christ. You have countless tutors in Christ. So Jameson Fawcett Brown says, quote, Paul admits that these instructors were not mere legalists, but evangelical teachers. However, John Gill disagrees with that. He says that Paul is referring to the false teachers in Corinth. He's using this phrase ironically. You have countless tutors in Christ, ho, 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 in Christ being in air quotes. Yeah, they say they're in Christ, but they're not really. I tend to think Jameson Fawcett and Brown is right at this. I think he's talking about people like Apollos, people who watered the church, traveling teachers who came in. They were good teachers, I think. But, you know, it's hard to say. Gill might be right. Maybe he's referring to false teachers. First, First Corinthians 4.16, Paul continues, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, that little verse is important. Be imitators of me. Paul says it also in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Why is that important? Because how did what was Paul concerned with? In all of his missionary journeys, he was concerned with starting churches, and as in the case with the Corinthians, he was, in, 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 he was concerned with instructing churches on how they ought to act and behave. He, he mentions things of church structure, elders, all kinds of stuff. So why shouldn't we imitate him? And here's what happens. People say, well, but it doesn't say anything about there. There's not a direct command in Acts to tell me what to do. No, but there's lots of patterns in Acts. There's lots of things that Paul did. It would be good to imitate them. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, he assumes that the church ate the Lord's Supper as a full meal every week, and he assumed that all kinds of spiritual gifts would be operating. There wouldn't be one man preaching a sermon. But, oh, no, that's, you know, the American Institutional Church is not going to buy any of that because we got to have that same boring sermon every morning. And then we got to have three hymns and the doxology. And by golly, if you don't do it that way, there's something wrong with you. Well, I think it's the other way around. I think it's if we don't do it Paul's way, we're not being imitators of him. He told the Corinthians to be imitators of him. Why can't we put ourselves in the shoes of the Corinthians, and be imitators of Paul. Why can't we use this as an application for us today? Paul was a leader. He wasn't afraid to ask his spiritual children to imitate him. Isn't that what fathers do? Son, look, this is what I'm doing. Here's how you hold the hammer. Do it that way, because you're my child and I'm your father. Now notice Paul says, I exhort you. He did not say, I command you. The apostles did not have command authority over their churches. Now this might seem a little bit strange, but you think about missionaries. Missionaries don't tell churches what to do today, and missionaries are our modern-day equivalent of apostles. Apostles just had moral authority over their churches, not command authority. Frank Viola's Rethinking the Wineskin, I think he's changed the name of the book. I read it years ago. He exhaustively shows the places where the apostles wanted something done. It, it, it basically a fantastic word study all through the New Testament. And it was amazing to me to see how many times apostles exhorted and suggested rather than commands. I think there was one, I can think of one exception to that. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 16, but the exceptions are so rare they prove the rule. When things really got out of hand, maybe Paul might exert his authority a little stronger, but he was always exhorting and suggesting and right, and rather than commanding. And right here he says, I exhort you to be imitators of me. 
Just to give you an example, this same church in our next chapter in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, they had a man who was sleeping with a stepmother. He was an immoral man. Paul didn't say, I'm going to come kick that guy out. That's what everybody thinks. That's not what it says. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you, that's capital Y, capital O, capital U, you, referring to the Corinthian church, are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He didn't say, I'm going to come do it. He says, you do it. Now, he's going to be with them in the spirit. When you are assembled, that means as a church body, getting ready to do church discipline, you are to deliver this man. The church has authority over its internal affairs, not the apostle. And so, therefore, Paul exhorts, even though he was the founder of the, apostle, of the church. And it would even be more so if he is dealing with a church like the Romans, which he didn't start. He, would only, he could only exhort them, and he did. He did that in the book of Romans, but he was very careful not to pull rank over anybody. I'm a great apostle. I saw Jesus. I had visions, and you better listen to me, by golly, or you're not a good Christian. John Gill says this, Though he might have used the power and authority of a father, yet he chose rather to entreat and beseech them. I wonder if Gill's even right about that. Could he have used the power and authority of a father? How could he? How, a father has power over his child. He can give him a spanking. Or he can deprive him of his inheritance. But how could Paul exercise authority over the Christian church? Could he fire them from their positions? Could he put them in jail? No, he, he couldn't. He didn't have that kind of authority. So I don't think John Gill is really precisely accurate about that, saying that he could have exercised the power of, of a father. I don't think so. 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul continues, This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful son in the Lord. He reminds you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, just as the Corinthian church was Paul's son, so Timothy was Paul's son. So it's kind of a good parallel there. The reason that Paul was sending Timothy, when he says, this is why I've sent Timothy, what's, what's the this refer to? So that the Corinthians would imitate Paul. That's the last verse we just read. Imitate me as I imitate me. I exhort you to be imitators of me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you, so that you can imitate me. Now, this was a tough job probably for Timothy to pull off. Now, remember, Timothy's younger than Paul. The Corinthians could easily treat Timothy as an enemy and a spy. In 1 Corinthians 16:10, Paul refers to Timothy again. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear from you. In other words, Paul was concerned that maybe the Corinthians might have treated Timothy quite harshly. See that he has nothing to fear from you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So Timothy was coming, he was coming into a difficult situation, but he was a good representative of Paul. He, Paul writes Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10, But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. So Paul was very high on Timothy. Let me finish this section up with a quote from Alfred Barnes. This was probably when Paul was at Ephesus. Remember, Paul had gone on his third journey and he stopped at Ephesus. He quickly went to Ephesus and stayed there for three years. And so, and he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. And so when he's sending Timothy, it was probably from Ephesus. He sent Timothy and Erastus into Macedonia, probably with instructions to go to Corinth if convenient. Yet it was not quite certain that Timothy would come to them. For in 1 Corinthians 16, 10, he expresses a doubt whether he would. Let me stop right here and read that. 1 Corinthians 16.10, I've already read the verse, but let me point out again, Paul says in that verse, if Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear from you. If Timothy comes, so it wasn't quite certain whether Timothy was coming. 
Paul was probably, I'm continuing the quote from Bar, Alfred Barnes, Paul was probably deeply engaged in Asia and did not think it proper then for him to leave his field of labor. He probably supposed also that Timothy, as his ambassador, would be able to settle the difficulties in Corinth as well as if he were himself present. So this was sort of a tentative sending of Timothy to Corinth. There's no tentativeness shown in 1 Corinthians 4.17. Paul says outright, this is why I have sent Timothy to you. But later on, he says, if he comes to you. Now, maybe Paul, maybe Paul on purpose sent Timothy to come. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. But Paul realizes that something might come up before Timothy gets there. If Timothy comes, 1 Corinthians 16.10, if Timothy comes, means something might have happened to him. That he can't make it. And maybe Paul did send Timothy straight on. That's a minor point, but at any rate. When Timothy comes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.17, he will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus. Remind? He's not going to teach him anything new. He's not going to teach him anything they don't already know. We all need to be reminded lots of times. Basic fundamental stuff. That's why sports teams go over the fundamentals. Baseball teams do that all the time. What are the fundamentals? Boring stuff, but it's easy to forget the basis, the fundamentals of your sport or profession or Christian faith. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus. Again, the ways, that's referring to imitate me. I exhort you, brethren, to imitate me about my ways. Here's some example according to John Gill. The example of Paul's ways. The doctrines that he taught. The proper manner of life for Christians. Rules and orders for discipline and management of the church. And that's what I like to focus on because that gives you a lot of hint about how you ought to do it at your church. If you're interested in starting a church, instead of doing it the same old build a building, go millions of dollars in debt, hire some 20-year-old kid out of seminary with a fluid tongue, sit everybody in pews, look at the back of their heads and wonder why people are bored to death and there's no community in your church. Maybe if we would look at the way Paul did church, we might be a lot happier in our church life. Now notice, speaking of church, speaking of church order, discipline, Notice that Paul says, I, t- I want you to imitate my ways just as I teach everywhere in every church. Churches didn't just go off and do things the way they wanted to do it. They didn't just do what was right in their own eyes. They followed Paul's pattern of teaching in every, E-V-E-R-Y, in every church. There was a certain apostolic church order. We cannot deny that. And Paul expected conformity to that order. Now that church order might have been simple and low church, which I believe it was, but nonetheless, it was a church order. You know, there's some house church Christians that get so low church that pretty soon, oh, two or three are gathered together. There Jesus is in our midst. So we got two people that meet together once every six months that go, oh, they run into each other in the grocery store and, and, oh, we're having church. No, you're not. You're having fellowship perhaps, and you're having a good time. Fine. But you're not having church. These emerging churches should contemplate this. You know, oh, we're going to get together and we're going to sit around some furniture and we're going to paint paintings while we emote about how beautiful God's creation is as we slap the paint down on the canvas. No, that's not church. Remember Paul said to Timothy, I think it was Timothy, uh, about scriptures to be read every Lord's Day in church. Scriptures to be read. You go to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, there were certain spiritual gifts that would be exercised, including teaching, including prophecy and so forth. Oh, the women weren't supposed to judge those prophecies. There's all kinds of stuff that went on in in church. If we would not only imitate Paul's teaching, but also his example. One last thing before I leave verse 17. Paul calls Timothy his son. 
That does not mean that Paul converted Timothy. He nurtured Timothy, but he didn't convert him. We know that because we read in Acts 16.1, this is an account of Paul starting out on the second journey. Then he, Paul, went on to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy. So when Paul arrived in either Derby or Lystra, it's not clear, but wherever he arrived, that Timothy was, he was already a disciple because he was a disciple named Timothy. So Paul didn't lead him to the Lord. He found him as a disciple. We go to 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 19. Paul continues, Now some are inflated with pride as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. Now when Paul says some are inflated with pride, the NIV Study Bible says that he is referring to those of the Corinthians who were trying to undercut Paul's authority. Now Paul's not doing a blanket condemnation here, you notice. It's just the the teachers, whether they're Christian teachers or whether they're false teachers, but they're, they're prideful either way. They're undercutting Paul's authority. How do we know this? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 3. Paul says he's defensive here. He's defending his apostolateship. And because he was defensive, he says, I hate to boast, but I've got to in another place. Paul says this, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work of the Lord? See, he's appealing to his apostleship, which was somebody was denying it. If I am not an apostle to others, see in verse 2, if I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you. So there were people there in Corinth who were not recognizing his gift of apostleship. And then he says, I'm an apostle to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this, and he goes on, my defense to those who examine me. So see, Paul has been put under a microscope, and people have been blasting him. And I heard somebody say this once. And I'm telling you, it's absolutely true. You try to do anything in the body of Christ as a leader, as a, as a starting a church or being an elder in a church, and guess what's going to happen? Everybody in the world, your Christian brothers, are going to criticize the heck out of you. And if you don't get it from them, you're going to get it from somebody else. You've got to get ready for it. I haven't been in such a situation in years, to be quite frankly with you. I really like the peace. I mean, I get bored sometimes thinking, hey, maybe I'd like to be in starting a church in China again, or maybe being an elder in a church, I don't, you know. No. Well, yes. I mean, you know, if you're called to do that, you got to do it. But I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But if you're called to do it, you got to remember that people are going to criticize you. And Paul's a perfect example. Why would somebody criticize Paul? I mean, my gosh, the man had revelations from Jesus. There are over a billion people in on the world today reading his words. I admire him like crazy. I can't believe anybody would criticize that man, and yet they did. So it doesn't, I don't care what a, kind of a hot shot you are, how many spiritual gifts you have, and what kind of a leader you are, and people going to criticize you. I remember one time I heard a story about Watchman Nee, and somebody was reaming him out. Now, Watchman Nee was a great guy, you know, but somebody was just taking him down the country, and Nee was sitting there with his head bowed listening to it. And somebody went up to him and said, Watchman why are you just sitting there taking that? He says, please leave me alone. I'm listening to the Lord. <laughs> so, so, you know, the point is that sometimes criticism is justified, but a lot of times it's not. And in this case, it was not. What are some of the things they were saying about Paul's? We could glean that from 2 Corinthians 1.17. So when I planned this, was I irresponsible? Or what I planned, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no simultaneously? 
So he was accused of being unstable, as the NIV Study Bible summarizes that verse. The NIV Study Bible says people were saying his ministry was unimportant, 2 Corinthians 10.10. For it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak, and his public speaking is despicable. Paul says that the Corinthians, or some of the Corinthians, are inflated with pride. He says some are inflated with pride. But now in 1 Corinthians 5, 2, he doesn't say some. He says, you are inflated with pride. So he, Paul blasts the whole Corinthian church there, not just the divisive teachers. You are inflated with pride. This is the next chapter. Instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation, referring to the brother who was sleeping with a stepmother, committing a sexual immorality that even the pagans, the nasty, sexually immoral pagans in Corinth would be shocked at. They were inflated with pride with their gifts, their learning, and their eloquence, as John Gill says. Now, Paul is refers to the fact that these people who were inflated with pride, the some who were inflated with pride in verses in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 4, they would be inflated with, with pride as though he were not coming to them, as though he were not coming to Corinth. Why would they think? Why would they complain? Why would they be saying, hey, Paul's not coming, Paul's not coming? Well, because those of the Cephas party and the Apollos party probably mock those of Paul's party and say, hey, your big leader's not even going to come deal with this situation here in Corinth. All these problems we got here, all this division, ah, he's not going to come. He doesn't care about you. He's not really an apostle. So Paul is, uh, is he, he might also be anticipating an objection because he sent Timothy. You know, Paul was busy in Ephesus. He had a lot of work there, a lot of churches he was ministering to, teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus and so forth. He didn't have time to come, so he sent Timothy, and he could see people saying, well, look at the great apostle Paul. He can't even come. He got to send his little young son. got to send his second-hand man, his second banana, his second fiddle over here to Corinth to deal with us. He, he didn't even think us, like, we're important enough. He can't come himself. He's got to send a representative. And Paul said, well, you say that about me? Then you're inflated with pride, buddy. And then he says in verse 19, but I will come to you soon, meaning him personally, which he did do, by the way. He eventually got there. They had gotten things straight by the time he got there, but he, he ended up there at the end of the third journey. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And he's not promising to come. He says, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. And he says, I'll come take care of these loud mouths. Now, when he says, I will be coming soon, that will be after Pentecost, because in 1 Corinthians 16, 8, he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. That was his plan. And he says, if the Lord wills. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. Paul never planned anything without it being subject to the Lord's veto. Now, faith message people really ought to do would do well to meditate on this. When I was influenced, or I, sh- I shouldn't say, well, I guess I was influenced, but I wasn't really influenced because I knew there was something wrong with it, but I was surrounded by it at one time in my life, and they were always saying, don't ever pray if it be thy will. And I looked at Jesus, I said, well, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, if it be thy will. And I started saying, What's wrong? what are these people teaching this for? Now, to be fair, they do have a point. They would say, you're not showing faith. You're wavering when you say, if it be thy will. Now, they do have a point. Like, for example, if you went up to, let's say that some sexy woman comes to you scantily clad and says, I want you to have sex with me, even though I'm married to somebody else and you're married to somebody else. And you say, Lord, if it be thy will, let me resist this temptation. Well, I mean, that's just plain stupid. You don't play that way. So there's a point. If something's clear in the scripture... You don't pray if it's God's will because you know it's his will. But if there's something that's not clear in the scripture or not being, in Paul's case, not been revealed to him in any way, whether he should go to Corinth or not, he was living his human life. 
praying to the Lord. He didn't know what the Lord's will was at that time for him to come to Corinth. If you don't know what the Lord's will is, there's nothing wrong with praying if it be thy will. How about this? This is a good theological nut to chew on. What if you have a friend that, or a family member that you really care about and you want them to get saved? And you say, Lord, if it be thy will, save this person. Now you think about that. You don't know whether that person's in the elect or not. I don't care how close they are to you. You want them to be saved, but you don't know they're going to be saved. I had an atheist father. I wanted him to be saved. And in this life, he never accepted Christ. I mean, maybe he saw him on the way up and bent his knee on the, on, on the, way, on the, on the way out of his body. I don't know. But in this life, he never accepted Christ. And so I don't know whether it's God's will to save somebody that I'm praying for, but I pray for him anyway. So there, there's an implicit, God, save this person if it be your will, if he is in the elect. Well, anyway, what's the application from this? The less sure you are that something has been promised, leave yourself open to God's will. How about this in James 4, 13 through 14? This is James. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. James says in verse 14, You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. You better make your plan subject to what God's will. I mean, today, I'm the day after Kobe Bryant, the great NBA superstar, got killed in a helicopter crash with his 13-year-old daughter, and I started to read about all this because I'm an NBA fan. It just makes me sick. And you think, all the plans he had. He was 41 years old. He was getting into publishing children's books and coaching kids' stuff, basketball. and All that stuff is gone. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And Paul didn't either. And so there's nothing wrong with him saying, if God wills. Nothing wrong with Jesus praying, God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. There's a gray area here about healing. You know, that, you know, if you keep praying, God, if it be thy will, heal somebody, pretty soon that does sound like unbelief. But then when you think that Jesus didn't pray that way, he's our example, isn't he? He didn't say, God, if it be thy will, heal this person. He said, I'm, I'm going to heal this person. And you say, well, we're not Jesus. Well, I don't know. Uh, the apostles did the same thing. Oh, well, we're not an apostle. Well, I don't know. There were other people in the New Testament, the 70, they weren't apostles either. They went out and did that kind of thing. And we read in Isaiah, he says, by your stripes we are healed. Our iniquities are forgiven and we are healed. And then Jesus quoted that in Matthew 8, not in the context of healing people spiritually and emotionally, but physically. He quoted Matthew in Matthew 8. He quoted Isaiah 53 about you being healed. So it seems to me that when you pray for somebody, you ought to pray that to be healed. And I don't think you ought to get around saying, well, I want you to be healed this way. I don't want you to have anything. The doctors to have anything to do with it. There's nothing wrong with that. You can get healed by a doctor fixing you up, some nutritionist fixing you up, God supernaturally healing you, or maybe your body just naturally heals itself without doing anything. I mean, you got to pray for wisdom when you get sick. There's lots of avenues which way you can go. And maybe in general, Jesus, you know, healing is in the atonement, but maybe, well, like take the example of the the man living in sin and sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul said, let his flesh be destroyed so the spirit might be saved. Well, that's not being healed, is it? So there might be some reason that God might not want you healed. I don't want to say that anybody's sick is because they're a sinner like this man was. I mean, it could be other reasons too. Maybe it's just your time to go. But I know this as I'm getting old. I've been praying for healing all my life. I mean, you know, I watch the body deteriorate as I get older. It's not fun. And I watch other people. I've had people die from Alzheimer's, friends of mine, die from Alzheimer's, from cancer. Uh, it's terrible. So I don't, I don't pray if it's your will. I say, God, heal me or heal my friend or heal my family member. 
If you don't want to, he can tell me no. Paul, Paul would, when he was talking about coming to see somebody, though, which is not like healing, that's, that's just a mere matter of planning. He would always say, if, it, if it's God's will. For example, in Romans 1, 10, he said, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. If it's not God's will, I'll come see you. So, for example, uh, Johnny goes up to Susie and says, Susie, if God's told me, God's told me that it is, it is God's will that I marry you. And what should Susie answer? It ain't, that ain't in the Bible, my friend. So if it's God's will, I will marry you. But don't go around here quoting God's will to me like I'm supposed to do something. You don't know that. A lot of men do that, which I think is disgusting. A violation of Romance 101 principles. Now, Paul says here, he says, If I do show up in Corinth, I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. Again, referring to those other apostles or other workers who are denigrating Paul's apostolic authority, he's going to know not their mouth, not their talk, but their power. Now, the talk he's referring to is probably the Greek rhetoric and fancy philosophy that these Greek-infested philosophers, uh, excuse me, teachers were teaching. And he was saying, I don't care about that. I want to know about the power. I want to see what kind of power they got. But now, what Paul? What did Paul mean by power? He says, I'm going to see their, see whether they got any power. Of course, he's implying they don't have any, and, and Paul did have power. Well, Adam Clark says the power he's referring to is the authority they have to make pronouncements from, from God. In other words, what kind of power do you have to, to speak the oracles of God, false apostles? Okay, that's option A. Option B it's referring to miracles. Paul, of course, did miracles, and he's saying, hey, these false apostles, let's see if they can do some miracles. How is power associated with miracles? For example, 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with much assurance. Actually, that verse doesn't explicitly say miracles, but when it says in word only, but in power, he could be talking about weak words versus powerful words. Maybe so. All right, so we won't use that one. 1 Corinthians 2.4, my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit. Well, I guess the scripture doesn't specifically say that powerful demonstrations are miracles, but a lot of commentators say that, and I think that's what he meant. I can't prove it. Gill denies that that's what power means. Quote, this is what Gill says, quote, by power is meant not a power of working miracles, the first preachers of the gospel had, and by which it was greatly confirmed. So Gill says, no, it's not power to work miracles. But Adam Clark disagrees and said, yes, it is power to work miracles. Quote, all his genuine apostles are enabled on all necessary occasions to demonstrate the truth of their calling by miracles. For this, the original word often means. So you see a lot of commentators think power means miracles. And it could be here. It could be conversion of sinners. Well, let's see if you false apostles can convert sinners like I can, Paul would be saying. Or it could be edifying of the church, the power to edify the church. Let's see if these false apostles can edify the church at Corinth like I can. Or it could be referring to godliness. Godliness. Let's see if these false apostles have the power to live a godly life like I can. Do they have faith? Do they have love? Do they have prayer like I do? Well, that's what all the commentators that I could find suggest. This is what I think it is. This is my opinion. Take it with a grain of salt. I think that what Paul is saying here is that Paul is referring to the power of these false apostles to stand up to Paul in argument. Paul was not afraid of controversy or nasty opponents. And he's saying, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to deal with you. Let's see if you can handle me when I'm here to speak to you face to face. See if you can talk so big. Paul was no shy violet. 
He was a man's man. He was a leader. 1 Corinthians 4.20, Paul continues, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. There's that contrast again, as in verse 19, the contrast between talk and power. Talk, 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 talk doesn't mean a thing. What is the kingdom of God? The NIV Study Bible says that's God's present reign in the lives of his people. And I add to that definition, wherever God reigns on earth or in heaven, because after all, God's ruling the saints in heaven, right? John Gill disagrees with me here. He says the kingdom of God is life in heaven, but not on earth. Uh-uh, John. Uh-uh. Please. No, 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 no. I don't think he's right. The kingdom of God is wherever God rules, wherever the writ of his authority runs. The jurisdiction in which the writ of God's authority runs, and that's in heaven and on earth. This idea of talk as opposed to power, I've already mentioned this verse, I'll read it again. First Thessalonians 1, 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Well, if you don't believe that Paul's talking about miracles here, well, at least you ought to believe he's talking about powerful teaching and evangelizing. You know, well, you know, God, Jesus, he loves you and, and he'll forgive you. And he's, he sits up there on a sofa in heaven and just starts throwing presents at you and he'll He'll love you and he'll give you a wonderful plan for your life. And you don't ever tell him the fact that this person's got to stand before the judgment seat of God for his sins and that sin is a terrible thing. The wages of sin is death. I just talked to a doctor in Beijing just yesterday morning. And I have decided as I've been going through these passages that when I talk to somebody but the Lord, I'm going to try to imitate the apostles. And I noticed they always talked about the resurrection. They talked about crucifixion and they talked about wrath. And it didn't necessarily mention hell, but what is wrath? That's when you separated from God and you end up in hell. So I mentioned all of that with this guy. And I said, do you believe it? Yes, yes, yes. Not a problem. Now, he did say he did have a problem. He was in a communist party and was scared to become a Christian because the communists might kick him out of being a doctor. So I said, well, you better stew on that for a while, you know, count the cost, bear the cost, and all that. But when it came to flinching about calling somebody, calling himself a sinner and that he was worthy of hell, he had no problem with that. And I think that people, if they're really being honest with themselves, know that they're condemned. They know that they're sinners. Look at their consciences, you know. And so we ought not to be afraid to point that out to them. you got to be do, do it nicely and politely. And I always say, yeah, just like me, you're a sinner, right? You know, you gotta, you got you to be smart about it. But still, you ought not to run from it and say, oh, I'm not going to talk about hell. That might offend somebody. I'm like, you know, in other words, don't pull an Andy Stanley and, well, we can't talk about the Old Testament because that's got some bad stuff in there about God put, showing his wrath on some Amalekites and some of these people. Oh, my gosh, we might think that God is a genocidalist because he's wiping out those nasty, evil people down there instead of focusing on their horrible sin that caused them to get the judgment of God on their heads. We turn around and trash the authority of the scripture, which Jesus never did. He believed in it explicitly, word for word, the Old Testament scripture. But at any rate, we go now to our last verse in this section and in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 4.21. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? In other words, cool your jets, Corinthians. Quit being so inflated with pride and quit listening to those who are inflated with pride and who keep questioning my apostolic authority. I don't want to come that way. I don't want to come as a father who's mad with his children and got a rod and will give you a spanking. I don't want to do that. I want to come in a spirit of love and spirit of gentleness, and that happens when you repent and quit acting the way you're acting. Now, many people say, see there, this shows that Paul has authority over the local church. No, it does not. And to prove that, let me just ask you some questions. Did Paul have legal authority over the church at Corinth? 
Was there an ecclesiastical organization giving him the powers so he could say, uh, you're gone, we've had a meeting of the association, the board of directors or whatever we call it, and we're kicking you out. No, didn't exist. Each church had authority over its own individual local church. He could not ask the Corinthians to be booted out of a church system because, the, as John Gill puts it, the power of excommunication is only in the local church. So that's not it. Okay, well, okay, well, did Paul have police authority over the Corinthians? Was there any sanction, any legal sanction he could levy against the Corinthians? Could he find them? Could he incarcerate them and put them in jail? No. So he doesn't have police authority. So he has no legal authority. No, excuse me, no ecclesiastical th legal authority. He has no secular police authority. Well, John Gill comes up with or mentions a speculation. I don't know if he actually believes this, but he did mention it. He said, well, Paul had the power or the authority the rod, he had the power to inflict disease and death on the Corinthians, like in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Really? Paul is going to go up there and like the avenging angel of death and say, hey, all you Corinthians are going to get sick and die unless you listen to me? No, no. Adam Clark says, agrees with Gill and says, the Corinthians must have known that Paul had the power of putting death and sickness on people and that they therefore consequently have dreaded a visit from him and his apostolical authority. Well, that's real interesting, but I don't believe it any more than I believe that grass is blue or grass is red or that the sky is... Ah, the sky's got all kind of colors, it doesn't it? I don't believe it. Let's put it that way. I can't think of a good metaphor. All right, so what kind of authority did Paul have to come? He had moral authority. That's the only authority that he had. He could go there. He could shame them. He could appeal to their consciences. Paul never appealed to his power anyway. He always said, I exhort you, I urge you. He only appealed to what was right before God. So that's what kind of authority he has. He did not have the power to tell the Corinthians to do anything that they did not want to do. That's hard to exercise that kind of authority, by the way. It takes a leader. In fact, it's really interesting in, in business organizations which do have, in which the managers do have legal authority over their subordinates and can fire them if they so desire. But that ain't the best way to manage. The best way to manage is, hey, do this because I told you so because I'm your manager. No. The best way is to lead by example and show them this is how you do it. I know you can do it. You need some help. I'll help you. That's just basic management sense. Same thing with kids. Oh, you need to do this because I'm your parent. How many kids just love to hear that, don't they? No, you say, oh, you, you, you appeal to them. This would really make me ashamed if you did something. This would shame God and your family if you did something like that. Now, when Paul mentions coming to you with a rod... He is alluding to his teacher-student analogy in verse 15, which, a few verses previous. This is what he said in 1 Corinthians 4:15. For if I were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. And of course, a father has a rod. And so what he's saying is, should I come to you as your father with a rod? Or in love and a spirit of gentleness. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished 1 Corinthians 4. In our next audio, we will take up that vexing question of the man who was sleeping with his stepmother. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.